everyone. I'm Denise Garth, Chief Strategy Officer at Majesco, and you're listening to the Future of Insurance Industry Leaders podcast series. Follow along as I interview the best and brightest leaders in the insurance industry and insure tech landscape to bring you the latest in digital transformation, innovation, industry trends, challenges, and opportunities, as well as next-gen technologies. We use our experience to anticipate what's next without losing sight of what's now. Stay tuned to find out your next now. Welcome, everybody, to the Future of Insurance podcast series. It's the start of 2024, and I am thrilled to have Manish Shah, our president and chief product officer, joining me today. Manish, welcome. Oh, Denise, uh, very, very nice to be on this podcast and uh, hope you're doing great. I am. So, Manish, I'm sure everybody knows you. You know, it's a small community, the insurance industry, but I always like to have everybody give a little bit of background about yourself and your role uh, here at Majesco. Yeah, absolutely. Look, I've been in insurance for over 25 years now, I would say, and it has been an incredible journey. There is so much that you go in into the industry like insurance as a technologist, it humbles you in terms of the complexity, in terms of the opportunities that the industry presents itself. As a technologist, what you can do to help impact both the business and the operating model. I started out my career in various different industries, but about 25 years ago, I got an opportunity to work for some tier one customers through consulting firms. That's how kind of I had my foray into the insurance industry. After a few years of learning more about the industry with various different customers, I ended up joining a small product company called Cover All Technologies. The name of the fame at that point that they had was that we could do a configurable policy admin system. Yeah, sure. It looks like a super table sticks today, but I'm talking about 20 years ago. So back when we were in AS400 mainframe world, uh, we were actually be able to configure the products on PCs and be able to deploy those things in weeks and months. That was basically the genesis in terms of, you know, my product journey, in terms of how we built or should build various different innovative products for the insurance. It was a very rewarding journey. I started out that in roughly in 2000, 2001 timeframe, before I ended up merging that company with Majesco in 2015, I played various roles in operations, in sales, and then eventually be the CEO of the company before I merged it. We merged with Majesco with a incredible you know, vision. And that vision, I can't be more glad that, you know, that we are so close to reality there in just, you know, seven, eight short years. That's been my role in terms of, you know, pushing the boundaries, challenging the status quo and innovating a purposeful innovations to bring it to the insurance carriers and brokers and MGAs where they can reflect that into their products and services to make our society better. You know, Manish, once you shifted from other industries into insurance, you were never going to leave insurance because that's what they always say. Once you're in, you're never out. You bet. <laughs> because I don't know the exact time frame, but I would say that it's somewhere between three to five years. You stay that long, then you are staying there because you try to get out, you know, as the godfather thinks they'll bring back. So you and I both came and joined Majesco at the same time. Obviously, you through the merger with Coverall and myself as, as joining the organization. 
And you and I have had a lot of conversations over the years with regard to vision and where the industry is going. How does that fit in with the product? So talk at a high level about your approach to product strategy, how that aligns to our corporate strategy, and how that, more importantly, aligns to the insurance market shifts and customer demands that seem continuous, relentless, and we keep kind of finding out something new every single day. It's not just one change. It's a lot of changes all at once. Yeah, absolutely. Never been a more interesting time in insurance than today. Your question is perfect. I'm just, I'm just going to ground it in a more tactical fashion in terms of when we think about strategy, when I have always thought about the strategy or today we entire product team thinks about the strategy, it's not a designated role. It is not something that you go out into a closed room and come up with the strategy, but rather it is more about how you be in tune with customers, with markets, with other peripheral you know, factors that is actually impacting the industry, that is impacting the shift in whether customer expectations or shift in the emerging risks and so forth. So our product strategy, which is, you know, very much in lockstep with our corporate strategy, is really focused on an end-to-end -end value chain for enabling our customers to provide the best insurance products and related services to a very fast-changing marketplace. And that basically is a built on a day-to-day -day experiences, day-to-day -day conversations, and also seeing other industries' advances, seeing how the customer behaviors are sometimes shifting, then those shifts that you can see from other industries as a leading factor so that you be prepared for it. So we think that very, very important things to understand that our strategy takes, you know, considers, which I'm sure you all see it, is the pace of change in insurance is definitely a many-fold higher than what it used to be a few years ago. Also, the industry is no more insulated. It is definitely affected by external forces. It's not a closed industry anymore, whether it is a non-incumbent insurance players or other technology factors. I mean, this all are fair game into the insurance industry. So our strategy basically says, okay, think of it from multiple dimensions. So first and foremost, from a benefit perspective, is that what is it that we should focus on so that our customer gets a speed to market? Now, that may seem like reasonably discussed and debated topic across many years. When we talk about speed, it's not just in a traditional sense. From our perspective, it is an inception to realization, kind of a speed to market for whether it's a new coverage or a new product or a new service and how the customers can actually harp on it. Because we think that the window of opportunity gets narrowed. And after and then during initial window of the opportunities, the insurers will have a advantage to differentiate themselves or advantage to sort of introduce and set the standards. After that, it does get commoditized very, very quickly if it is a hit idea. Also, to get the speed to market, I think a very related topic is flexibility. And the question in terms of flexibility is saying that how can we provide a lot more flexibility to our customers so that they are no longer tied to a long cycles, they're no longer tied to a very traditional frameworks in which how work has been done previously. And they have a more flexibility to introduce something. And at the same time, they have a flexibility to pivot 
as they are learning after introducing you know something new and changing it so we think that our strategy does reflect in our product to provide the speed to market to provide the flexibility also to tap into what we think is an ecosystem because as i said insurance industry is no longer a closed industry definitely they can't think of it as a closed platform or a closed operating system either which means that how do they tap into their partners whether they are other insurers whether they are other technology providers and then how can they seamlessly integrate their product and services to actually what they offer to the customer and doing all those things with a two-speed strategy of maintaining an existing operation, introducing a new things is quite challenging. In order to do that, beyond just the features and functions of the product, we think that the platform vision has to consider all those aspects to actually get to the benefit that the insurance industry can really enjoy. So in other words, whether you call it digital, you call it cloud, ecosystems, think about it or core systems. It's not just core system, it's everything, right? Like you got to think of it is policy, billing claims, not sufficient anymore. I think you have to think about all the aspects of distribution. You have to think about all the digital aspects, all the you know data analytics. Essentially, you see this thing as more customer-facing strategy, and that's basically what we focus. We focus on the customer demand, shifting marketplace, external factors that is coming into the industry, and stay ahead in our strategy to bring in those innovations for our customers in a timely manner. One thing to kind of lay out a strategy, but it's another to really make it real and sustainable. And one of the key areas that you always talk about during our product council meetings with customers, doing other sessions with prospective customers, is you talk about the product organization and the culture because that's really fundamental to the strategy. Describe how you've made it real for the teams and how it is now sustainable, Manish. Yeah, I mean, you know, this is probably a most underrated aspects of any product development, and that is an execution. I will tell you that, you know, strategy is not easy to get it right, but I'll tell you execution is many folds more difficult to get it right. And I think what has worked for us, actually we saw, and then we were fortunate enough to actually grow from a much smaller organization to a bigger organization. So we got to see the both sides of it. And what we saw during the smaller organization is that you can easily get the agility. You can okay to sort of take some kind of a risk as a group you are okay to sort of challenge and you know not necessarily have a compulsion to preserve the status quo for any wrong reasons. And I think that what we made sure that as we were growing and look, our journey has gone from a very, very small company, almost you can call it as in a startup to you know roughly 300 million in revenue that we are and over 2000 people. What we made sure that we don't get lost in that scale is our nimbleness, our agility, and our team spirit. So we still continue to make sure that some core values that have served us well, we still preserve it. And the way we try to preserve it is we, we still believe in small teams. So while we may be a very large in terms of headcount perspective than what we were before, we made sure that our teams are very collaborative. They are small enough that it can be collaborative. And they're diverse enough in terms of their functions and in terms of their skills and in terms of their backgrounds so that it can get the most diverse and robust, you know, ideas that float around. Definitely, we have a big emphasis on 
a right idea rather than you know focusing on whose idea it is and i think that is a very important thing that our teams don't necessarily take themselves seriously they just simply take their work very very seriously and through that culture what we have been able to achieve is something what i heard this term called patient urgency but we have been following that thing from long time so patient urgency is basically you know like you want to get into the innovation you want to try something urgently even though it may not be the need of an hour today uh and so that you can be patient to evolve that in a meaningful way like you never want to be as an example be a kodak where you just simply are so successful so set so good in what you've been doing and you didn't care to sort of innovate and refactor your model for the digital camera and then suddenly you have to now have very little time where you cannot patiently evolve it and that leads to a inferior product so we believe that let's start small but quickly we need to have a th- big vision we need to know that we're not going to get it right all the times and that is why we need to start quickly and we need to start small so you will see several things like you know so denise if you remember in november of 2022 the whole phenomenon of chat gpt and generative yep. ai hit the market and we don't like to be on a holding patterns we started actually working on it from january and we actually start announce the majesco gpt in march and the reason why we do those things is that there is no better way of learning other than actually doing it so we believe that kind of mindset whether it is in cloud world we did that same thing if you remember our journey in the cloud was mm-hmm. much sooner than others had a vision about digital platform not being just simple portals if you look at all these ideas it basically screams one simple thing is that our teams are not afraid of failing our teams are afraid of not trying but they're also very open in terms of saying yeah okay you know what we need to evolve this thing now that we know this let's move to the next best place and i believe that that culture is really the secret sauce for a sustainable innovation it can't be a cycle innovations cannot be a hype cycle it has to be something continuous but for that this one this mindset and this culture of trying something small but very quick having a big visions having an openness and adaptability to actually correct your vision as you move on and i think that's really what has helped us build a very sustainable innovative organization vinish i remember back it was right after both of us became part of majesco a few months later we really made that shift first to cloud we talked about the cloud then we made that shift to digital then we made that shift to platforms we made that shift to ecosystems and and now we make that shift with gen ai and we just have to continue to shift you know as things changed in the market and oftentimes leading uh the market in those shifts during that period of time that many kind of follow us denise if you remember right i mean none of those shifts were like oh we have a crystal ball or let's go through and do a 5 million dollar investment up front or make the big board cases you know business cases and all those things right this is all about jumping right into it dipping your toes in the water and learning from it and then evolving it as quickly as possible because i think experience is the best teacher that's our really our culture that we're not going to be afraid of trying something new 
even though it is unknown, even though it's scary, even though it may directly cannibalize of what we offer, we're just going to try. One of the other things that you and I talk about and all of us talk about within the organization a lot, we talk to our customers and prospective customers is really about one of the other key elements is around um, architecture. Having come myself personally from the insurance side many years ago, many insurers have replaced their legacy technology over the last 10 plus years, particularly in the property and casualty side. LNA and H is starting to now, but they replaced it. If they were early replacers, they did it with modern systems, but it was always on-prem. And on top of it, it was significant customization to kind of continue business as usual. Because, oh, that was our secret sauce, was that workflow, or this was our secret sauce. And what they did is they kind of recreated the same problem they were trying to get out of. And now the result is upgrade challenges, increased costs, limitations on what you can do digitally, difficulty in launching new products quickly out to the market, and quite frankly, lackluster um, user experiences, not just for customers, but now employees who are expecting to have kind of a very modern user experience. One of those foundational elements of the product strategy is that technical architecture. Talk about your perspective and the approach and the five kind of pillars that you have really kind of focused in on and how that has differentiated Majesco products. Yeah, listen, this is very close to my heart. <laughs> and, I know it is. And before we get into the details, I just want to share some, you know, my philosophy behind the architecture. So, the, you know, there are two things that I believe with my heart and I suggest everyone should, you know, think this way, you know, and see if they agree. But first is architecture is not an absolute choice. I think that, you know, it's not like there is a single architecture. I mean, there is there are advantages and then there are disadvantages of every single different, you know, architectural patterns that you can think of it. However, some are more suited for the type of the objectives that you are trying to serve than others. And that's why instead of getting fixated on a single architecture ideas or a single doctrine, so to speak, I think what's really needed to understand that now you gotta think of it as a platform. And when you are doing a platform, that platform is gonna have a very diverse set of objectives. And you should really see that what architecture suits in certain objectives versus other. It's totally okay, in my opinion, to have multiple types of architectures and have a hetero architectural platform in order to be working at its best. So that's one that our architecture is not an absolute choice. The second thing is architecture is not constant either. What I mean by that is that as the business need evolves, as the new patterns emerges, it's okay to shift from one architecture to another. There is no reason to get, again, get fixated by that. So what I'm trying to get here is that architecture is really is in response to the problem that we're trying to solve, not necessarily just a technical decision. It is actually is such a core tenant for a success for any project that you can take on. But if it is just being seen by itself and then missing that line of sight with what objective it serves over time, it becomes an end instead of being a means. And then that gets things into all kinds of trouble. I'll give you basically the architectural things that we followed. Obviously, cloud-native architecture. A lot of places we think that cloud-native architecture makes sense. We do use 
many of those things as services. So for example, you know, a document generation as a service, sure, we use that. But again, when we say cloud native architecture, there are sub architectures into it that, okay, should you always be a serverless architecture? And the answer is not necessarily. For some areas, serverless architecture makes sense. For some, it does not. So the way we think of our cloud native architecture is we look at our components, we look at a peculiar behavior that which one are compute sensitive versus which one are memory sensitive, which one something that actually makes sense to unbundle versus which one makes sense a bundle, and then think of it as a cloud native architecture. At the end of the day, what is it that we want to get out of it? What we want to get out of it is a lower operating cost, a higher scalability, and easy to evolve and update. That's really the fundamental benefits if you're trying to get out of it. And I'm sure that there are different things like rating will work very differently than the document generation, than the workflows. And you got to see them as an individual component, say that what's the best way to go about it. So that's like how we see, think of a cloud native architecture. Now, when we talk about cloud native architecture, it's, it's, it's hard not to think of it as a microservices and containerization, right? And again, same exact view. We are in fact, one of the early adopters of the microservices in Majesco products, and we learn a lot. And the simplest way Denise to describe this thing microservices is, it's not that simple that the more microservice you, you have is good, or the more micro is good, because here's the thing, if microservice is great, then nano services must be better, right? But that's not the case because there is a complexity of maintenance and a cost that comes with every microservices and every container with that microservices is involved. And that has to be weighed with the benefit that actually it gives. And then you say that what is the right you know, amount of decomposition or granularity that you want to achieve that gives you a most optimal balance between a deployment and management complexity versus a flexibility of change and scalability. Of how we think about it, clearly we believe and we firmly believe, I would say, is that there is no single platform that can just exist in the world by itself. It needs to interact openly and easily with various other capabilities that is outside the realm of the platform. And what that means is that we need to have a very robust API system. A few years ago, I would say about four or five years ago, we set an initiative. And I'll tell you, at, at that point, we didn't hear much about need for an API from the customer as much as we are hearing today. But at that point, we said, hey, you know what? Every function that we allow our, you know, to be available within our system should be available within an API. It's a simple statement, a mammoth task. But the team took over and team said, okay, you know, we're going to go for it after they understood that it's not something we needed today. It's something we definitely going to need it in the next four or five years. And I think that that's kind of a mindset that we kept. And then we evolved that into an OS 3.0 specification so that it's more standardized ways to access API. Then we moved on to using an APIM. So it's not just about having API, but having people to orchestrate them, having people to govern and you know, you know, monitor those APIs. So we kind of evolve again, the same theory. We start very early, very small, and then we learn and then we evolve. And that API architecture essentially gave us the whole headless 
capability because it's not two separate things. I mean, if you have an API architecture, then you're going to get a headless capability as well, where you can just use our UI. But what has fundamentally impacted a big, big thing in our call it a you know technical architecture or call it a conceptual architecture is a whole embedded analytics or what we call it an intelligent solutions. And that is where we are saying an architecturally, it's a big mistake. If you see data and analytics separately from you see from point of sale or point of service systems. So whether it's point of sale or point of service system, and then you say, here is my data and analytics architecture. I think it is one of the biggest architectural blunder one can make. Because at the end of the day, any analytics that is not actionable, it's of no value in my view. And which means having a whole architectural nuances on your existing system to support the embedded analytics in the decision-making, in the customer experience, in the overall productivity is so important. And that's where you know we started again, as I said, about a couple of years ago on toying with an idea of an embedded analytics. And now where we are is we actually have a very, very robust set of analytics capabilities, which only is gonna get even more robust in coming years. So that's pretty much how we kind of look at it is a living, breathing subject of architecture, which is not something you set and then you're good for next five, 10 years. It's something that you constantly evolve, constantly you know, adjust and make more pragmatic decision in light of what your business objectives are. Well, with the pace of change and the pace of technology, it really does have to be able to adapt pretty rapidly these days. Totally. Yeah. So to wrap up this first part of our podcast, Manish, one of the things I think that shocked, actually, I think a lot of our customers and our partners was the approach that you took to the product roadmap. You know, for a lot of years, many solution providers in the marketplace, I remember being on the insurance side, it was very secretive what they were doing. And what you've done is you've made it very transparent to our customers and partners. Talk about that approach and how it's really helped us to engage customers and bring new ideas and clarity to priorities versus kind of the old method where you get some people together for a user group and you'd hash it out and you'd argue and all of that. We're doing this all digitally and very transparently. So it's a broader pool of people who can really see this. Talk about why this is so important. Yeah. I mean, look, we realized a few years ago that there is so much foresight that our customer has because they they battle this thing on front lines every day. They have users who actually deal with newer challenges and they know that what would make their life simpler. They know that how the system should be you know, further advanced to tackle the problems that didn't exist necessarily last year. But it's one thing that they know, and it's another thing that how they can, they can communicate with us. The second challenge we saw is many of those things that we even when bringing it out into our roadmap could have been influenced a lot more by users if they knew that what we were doing, that even sometimes a small tweak can actually make a huge difference. But most of the times our customers were finding it out after the fact rather than before. Having that, as you mentioned, Denise, you know, user group, it's just very, very, very transactional and very small. It's not something that actually gives a community-based uh, problem solving. So we wanted to build a community where both our customers in Majesco kind of collaborate on what's next, what, what is a better way to advance the, the existing features versus coming up with the newer capabilities. So we decided first and foremost to make sure that our customer has a full access to our roadmap. 
which means we created a online product roadmap. And as part of an online product roadmap, our customers can see our next 12 to 18 months of roadmap online. And when I say roadmap, it doesn't mean a one-liner item, right? It means and what that thing is, it, it gives, they can see all the way up to the user story level of exactly what we are thinking and imagining this. And every update that we do in that, they see that so that they can plan accordingly. And then we created the counterpart, the other side of the coin, as we created a very simple idea portal for them where they can throw in their ideas. In fact, all customers can see each other's ideas and they can vote on it to actually have saying, yeah, okay, I think that makes sense. Or they can vote and say, hey, by the way, in addition to what this is, add this additional capability, which will even go bigger. And then we bring those ideas into our product roadmap and it's fully transparent where our customers can see them. We recently started a whole UX design group, which is a focus group across the customers. So when we released this co-pilot, which is a generative AI in our products uh, in last October, the whole interface of that was tried out with a focus group and tested out to see that how they have reacted and then you know refined based on those inputs. So we think that as a community, we can advance much you know, faster and in a much more meaningful way. But to create a community, you have to develop a trust. And to develop a trust, we took the first step of opening up our product roadmap. Sure, we are open to critics if they don't find it good, but that's what it is for, that we want to learn from our customers, good, bad, and ugly, so that we can improve. And I think that's really why I think it is super important. Anybody is in the enterprise software world, uh, secrecy doesn't work. Uh, community uh, works. Well, I got to tell you, Manish, the last eight years have been a heck of a ride with you. I've enjoyed every bit of it, working with you and collaborating with you and seeing what you've done with the team to really uh, deliver on a strategy from an architecture standpoint, how we really interact with customers in a much more proactive way. And it really sets the stage for our part two that will be coming up about how that really sets the stage for innovation. So congratulations, Manish, to you and the team. And I'm looking forward to the next conversation. Oh, thank you, Denise. Thank you for having me. That's it for this week's episode of Future of Insurance Industry Leaders podcast. Subscribe to our market-leading podcast series available wherever you get your podcast from. Thank you for listening and be sure to tune in the next time.